This is John McAndrew, and you're listening to Rebellion Dogs Radio. That's right, John McAndrew, director of Sensible Spirituality Associates. This is Rebellion Dogs Radio, 12-step culture for the 21st century now with more bite and less dogma. Welcome one and all. Today, we're talking about grief. Grief in general, grief as it applies to or complements the 12-step process. Do a word search on the word grief in your Alcoholics Anonymous ebook, and you won't find it in the first 164 pages, except maybe for page 125 in the family afterward. And there, as you might expect, it's talking about the grief the alcoholic inflicts upon the family, not a word about the trauma and loss experienced by the alcoholic. If you know AA's history, you can see how two Vermont Yankees like Bill and Bob, our founders, coming from a 1930s Great Depression decade, would maybe have a stiff upper lip, look after our side of the street morality, and one might understand and maybe even forgive the fact that our own grief, our personal trauma and loss, isn't incorporated into the personal inventory process. In this day and age, it would be absurd to explore self-awareness without confronting trauma and loss in the ledger of an alcoholic's life. If you're a literalist, you may feel the big book works exactly as written. It needs nothing omitted, added, or liberally interpreted. It's a modality that works, so why mess with it? Well, to you I say, then don't mess with it. Maybe you're right. It doesn't require a doctor a treatment center, or any pill. So, if it works exactly as written, stay with it. (laughs) Today's show, we attack nothing and we defend nothing. We do know that some need more, and thankfully, as prophesied in the book Alcoholics Anonymous, more has been revealed. We will look at 21st century practitioners who deal with loss, sorrow, grief, and what they add to the AA 12-step legacy. Please keep an open mind. These ideas have made the big book promises come true for me, not every day and not in any kind of a Shangri-La life, but as part of trudging a road to happy destiny. John McAndrew is a spiritual teacher, counselor, facilitator, musician, and poet. For over two decades, he's directed retreats and workshops around the world provided educational opportunities for people seeking spiritual growth. With a background in literature, music, and theology, John has applied himself to sharing experience, strength, and hope in diverse settings, including his own ministry, hospice care, detention facilities, and recently as director of spiritual care at the Betty Ford Treatment Center in Rancho Mirage, California. It was while working with Betty Ford that he was slotted into the program at the National Conference of Addiction Disorders uh, September 2013. He's since left Betty Ford. Betty Ford Treatment Center in Hazelden, for those of you who don't know, are two of the world's most renowned treatment centers, and they're merging. Bean counters, not spiritual care counselors, guide the restructuring process, and there isn't room for everyone. So John's now involved in a new venture. He's director of Sensible Spirituality Associates. At the time of editing this show, it's the first quarter of 2014, and I don't know if they're up and running yet, but check it out online. 
Of course, if it's an ex-Google, I'll sound like an idiot saying, hey, have you ever heard of Sensible Spirituality Associates? So go ahead, have a look. At any rate, we'll hear more from John McAndrew. He spoke with Rebellion Dogs Radio from the 2013 National Conference of Addiction Disorders at the Anaheim Convention Center. We'll bring you part of that discussion in a couple of minutes. Also on our show, I'll share with you what I've learned from Dr. Jeffrey Warburton, who works with hospice for people with AIDS at London Lighthouse. He shares what he's learned from those facing their own death and the loss of a loved one. When we feel like we have to block anger, we deprive ourselves of our vitality. When we repress pain, we lose our compassion. When we block our hate, we can't find peace. And when we avoid the abyss which loss imposes, we will never discover who we really are. This is the vocabulary of Dr. Warburton. But it rings true with me and my recovery. The chaos of life continues once addiction is overcome. Loss is part of every good life as it is a part of every bad one. Nancy Byrne does a TED Talk called Beyond Closure. She argues that closure is a made-up word, a promise, a marketing tool offered as a carrot that's always out of reach. Laura Prince has a company called Good Morning, and she gave a TED Talk from San Francisco how and why to create a space for grief and mourning. Good Morning, her company is spelt M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. Ernie Kurtz has teamed up again with Catherine Ketchum. They're doing a 20th century ode to the spirituality of imperfection with a new book called Experiencing Spirituality due out May 2014. In the original book, Kurtz and Ketchum drive home the often forgotten fact that the human experience, the spiritual experience, is an imperfect, vulnerable, and temporary experience. The point is, we aren't expected to get it just right. We don't do life perfectly. Spiritual progress, not perfection, is not a one-time, problem-solving, addiction-arresting modality. It's a way of living. And if life is going to include the abyss of trauma and loss, how do we keep on living imperfectly and not arrest our whole life as a consequence of trying to make sense of our suffering? Let's hear from John McAndrew. I had the great pleasure of attending his presentation, The Big Book, Alcoholics Anonymous, Developing Spiritual Principles for the 21st Century, and I interviewed him the following day. John sees universal spiritual principles found in the big book, but he says that some of the major objections that some clinicians have about using the big book as a primary treatment tool can be summarized in four points. Number one, the language and culture reflects a supposedly homogeneous early mid-20th century American culture. Two is the gender issues, particularly how women have to translate the by-men, for-men assumptions found in the text. Three is the religious issues. He notes and identifies and moves through a foundation of AA, very much informed by the Oxford group and the Christian worldview that that indoctrinated. And this underlies the whole spiritual language of the text. And four, what we're talking about today, he talks about the absence of any tools for dealing with grief as a primary reaction or response to addiction treatment. John McAndrew incorporates the Alcoholics Anonymous philosophy and modality into his practice with those who suffer from addiction and trauma. He 
He's a fan of the breakthrough work of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. Her book on death and dying from 1969 introduced the now famous five stages of grief as a pattern of adjustment, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. It may not have been the final word on self-care, but it was a big step forward from the get-off-your-pity-pot, your loss was meant to be, and the litany of inane attempts that the well-intentioned afflict upon the suffering in an effort to help them heal. I bring you to the busy cafeteria of the 2013 National Conference of Addiction Disorders, John McAndrew. John, you gave a presentation yesterday about the role of... uh, the book Alcoholics Anonymous in the 21st century. Mm-hmm. You know, asking, is it still relevant? Mm-hmm. How is it still relevant? What are the criticisms? So on and so forth. Our, our listeners will be very familiar with the it's too patriarchal, it's uh, kind of dated, it's uh, too theistically oriented, those types of criticisms. Mm-hmm. But you made a, a great point that in the recovery cycle they miss something very important which is grief work Mm -hmm. with the we only look after our side of the street can you explain why like in for context from 1930s middle america that's forgivable to you why that would happen well there wasn't the consciousness i really wasn't until probably the early 70s that culturally we started to be more conscious of the need for bereavement, support, grief recovery. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's work on death and dying was seminal and started to open the conversation. But prior to that, particularly as males, and the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, a book written by men for men, really didn't address any of those issues. Women's recovery is also a developing and unfolding field, but particularly in the realm of grief, there just isn't a word in the big book because it isn't an area that they looked at. It wasn't seen as a man just sucked it up and went on and Mm -hmm. and you got over it and and that was how we move forward. And what we've come to realize is that not only is grief a, a vital part of our human experience, but it's an entry point for whatever you want to call spirituality. However you define that experience of connection and meaning doing grief work is an entry point well the buddhists say uh enlightenment comes from suffering exactly right i I don't know that we'll get everybody uh praying for the suffering to accept the things i cannot change (laughs) (laughs) maybe not if we can embrace the paradoxical nature of that it's one of the great insights of 12-step recovery is it's paradoxical at its heart that, that we surrender in order to win, that we, we embrace the suffering, we lean into the pain to find our way through rather than to get around something. So we're not going to try to avoid the consequences of our behaviors. Instead, we're going to accept responsibility for that. In skiing, you're, you're taught you have to lean into the hill, downhill, where the danger is. Very counterintuitive. Yeah. yeah. And paradoxical, and that Again, it opens up, you know, this this whole realm of paradox, which is really surprising to a lot of people because that's not their experience of religion and spirituality. That's always seen as very dualistic, either or, black and white, here's the rules. 
and authentic spirituality is always going to flow out of the realm of the paradoxical. Right. Now, when you describe grief, you make it clear it's not uh, a feeling per se. What most people who work in the field have discovered is that, that grieving is a process. It's not a single feeling. It's usually a, a constellation of conflicting feelings. Right. Which makes it difficult to process. How can I, I love him and he was a son of a bitch? How can I bring those realities? They're both true. Mm -hmm. I need to acknowledge that paradoxical reality before I can move through, and I need to own those feelings. And as we begin to do that, we recognize that maybe the world isn't quite as dualistic as black and white as I had been, been taught or as I had been trying to live. Once that realm opens up, I think we open ourselves to what is, quote, spiritual in a whole new way. We're, we're now open to what is rather than the substitute reality of what I think it should be. People, they, they don't have the time to help us through our grief to the extent that the process takes. Yeah, and, and norm, normal grieving, uh, 12 to 18 months, uh, so the experts say. Right. Um, and having worked in, in hospice for a number of years, you realize that the normal process is incredibly painful and, and uh, it, it shakes your reality. And there are all sorts of complicating factors. Multiple losses in a short period of time, uh, being part of the criminal justice system, mm -hmm. uh, violence, uh, addiction, and recovery. Those are all complicating factors. So what the normal process of 12 to 18 months might be extended over sometimes decades as people really begin to assess their need to grieve. And if it's three weeks after a loss and you're <laughs> mentioning it in the rooms, you might hear... Uh, yeah, this is, this is one of the downfalls of 12-step recovery is, you know, we tend to get a lot of crusty old-timers who maybe haven't done any grief work and they'll say, well, that sounds like self-pity. Get off, get off the pity pot. And grief is not self-pity. Grief is not a single feeling. It is a process, and there will be stopping points. Depending on your temperament and personality and experience and culture, looking at, at grieving as a process is really, really vital. Uh, while it's helpful to have counselors and therapists and people with initials after the name assisting us, this is a very human thing, and we've been doing this for tens of thousands of years. We need to tell our stories. Mm -hmm. We need to talk about the loss. We need to say it over and 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 over. And it will always last longer than our friend's capacity to listen to us. But we have to find some place where we can tell the story. And what are the symptoms? What's the fallout of uh, if you don't meet the need of your own grieving? I think if we don't do our own grieving, we go inside, we just compress it down, and we stop feeling a lot of things. Mm -hmm. We're very competent out in the world, we're, we're often uh, very busy, very successful, but Stephen Levine has said that all emotional pain is grief. Mm -hmm. And we could argue about it, but I, I kind of take that as a starting point. If I do not deal with my emotional pain, if, I, if that pain is not transformed, it gets transmitted. It gets all over the people that are closest to me. And that's the, the unfortunate 
unintended consequence of not dealing with grief. Of trying to share them, save them from the burden. Right, we actually make a bigger mess out of it, so, yeah. Uh, Now, here's a a question. For addicts, alcoholics, people coming into recovery, is it too morbid to grieve the end of your relationship with your drug of choice? Why do we give out those silly little chips for 30, 60, 90 days? Why do you count your days? And the answer that made most sense to me was, if I'm not counting the days, I'm probably not done yet. (laughs) And if I've not done my grief work, if I've not acknowledged the loss, I probably am not going to be able to move forward. But people tend to, you know, they get recovery, they demonize their past. I wouldn't trade my worst day sober Mm -hmm. for my best day drunk. And that's probably not how their life unfolded. And I, I love that promise in the big book where it says we will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. I think that, that sets 12-step recovery apart from most other ways that people try to, to get over it. Mm-hmm. We don't close the door on the past. Yes, I do regret some of the past. Of course I do. Mm-hmm. But I'm not going to shut the door because sometimes those horrific memories, sometimes those, those traumas, sometimes the grief, the loss... Those are the moments of great insight as well. And, right. and it may take me a while to discover that. Right. So that's the paradox again. And you define paradox as? Seemingly contradictory things. The Greek word it means literally beyond belief. That's the title of an interesting book, isn't it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> what, uh, what we're trying to do in treatment to help people to recognize that the 12 steps are not so much a belief system as a practice. Mm -hmm. So whatever you may believe uh, really respectfully, I don't care. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter because if my beliefs could have changed my addiction, I would never have found my way into 12-step recovery. I would have just used my belief system. Right. It didn't work. Yeah. Uh, However, when I changed my practice... And when I adopted these steps and began to do certain things, then we found change. Sure, the smartest people can relapse. The most Absolutely. spiritually attended can relapse. It, it's a holistic approach. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're at the National Conference for Addiction Disorders. Mm-hmm. Have you seen anything that's really surprised you or excited you? What's going on in the industry? I'm always a little concerned about the... Uh, the next latest wave of uh, drugs to treat drug addiction. Mm -hmm. Uh, That always concerns me. You know, we didn't learn from heroin being a great substitute for morphine and methadone being a great substitute for heroin. So there's a concern there. I I am not a clinician, so I'm not going to be prescribing drugs, but I'm always very cautious about uh, trying to solve the mystery of drug addiction and alcoholism with some other chemical. That's just me. And uh, can you uh, just uh, tell us more about your role at Betty Ford and Um, your background? Yeah, as as Director of Spiritual Care, we've got a, a staff of 12, and what we try to do is encourage an individual's own discovery, self-discovery, and development of their own conception of a power greater than themselves, how they can apply these steps. 
we try as best as possible to take the fight out of the whole spirituality thing helping them see that though the steps were written in the traditional 1935 god he language of you know a, a christian you know homogenized american culture that there are some universal spiritual principles that we can attend to and if we attend to those we really get a solid foundation in our own conception of what spirituality is so to that end our spiritual care staff works with the patients to lead them through at least the first five steps while they're in treatment right um if if people haven't at least done an introductory uh, inventory they really haven't we, we want them to have the experience right and recognizing that when they leave treatment they'll go out hopefully they'll find a good community a sponsorship but and their sponsor will probably say, that's nice, you're at the Betty Ford Center. Now, we're at step one, <laughs> as it should be. Yeah, we've got to unlearn all that. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, would you call yourself then a big book apologist? Is that a- um, I think I had a phase of, of uh, where that was very important. What I've come to understand, my background as a, I was a priest for 18 years in the Catholic Church. I've worked with hospice. I've done a lot of spiritual reading. And I think my understanding and use of the big book is based on using it as a, a text, uh, in some ways a sacred text held very reverentially by the 12-step community, which is constantly going to be reinterpreted. Uh, in, in AA, we've resisted changing a single word. Well, I've been through this fight in the Catholic community about changing the languages of Scripture and real patriarchal, oppressive language. It's, it's an ongoing fight, and I, I don't want to fight that fight. Let's acknowledge the, the gender issues. Let's acknowledge the language issues. Let's acknowledge the cultural issues. Let's acknowledge all those critiques and see if we can set those aside and get to the heart. There are some universal principles here. And if we can use these, we'll probably all be a little bit better. You use the word sacred. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you make something sacred, what do you gain and what do you lose from that? Uh, that's a good question. It's the experience of the sacred that's going to change us. There are people who call themselves very, very religious, and their experience of the sacred is, I would call it, idolatrous. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, they're invested in a particular way, a particular book, a particular experience, a particular thing, and then manage to exclude the rest of reality. So it's really all about how we, we use the language. I think most people are intuitively aware of a dimension to life that we might simply call mystery. Right. I would look at that as the sacred. Right. But I'm happy to call it the great mystery. Not that I need to solve it by getting all the pieces together, but it's going to be mystery precisely to the extent that there's an excess of intelligibility. There's way more than any person could ever understand. That's where I encounter the divine. So it's fluid for you. It's not reified. It's not cast in stone. I, I don't know. I don't. I, I, and, and in that sense, I think we're all agnostic. Yeah. In, in the sense that uh, we we can only know a little. That's yeah. one of the other great lines of the big book. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. 
mystery, the universe, however you interpret that, will disclose things and experiences to us that will change the way that I understand it. It's, it's pretty fluid. Well, thanks uh, for sharing. Appreciate that. Thanks. And uh, just uh, really enjoyed the presentation. Very sincere. Thank In you. fact, that seems to be the theme. This sort of crusty, eastern seaboard kind of... Uh, cynicism about the industry as a whole but mm. I, I haven't met anyone who fits that model here you know everyone nice. seems to yeah, be yeah yeah uh, it's california i think can. if if there's going to be growth in the 12-step movement this is where it's going to start yeah so. uh, well go california okay thanks so much john all right thank you joe john talks about how he doesn't wish to shut the door on his own past he talks about how grief sorrow suffering can afford him the greatest insights into his life and the world he lives in. He credits Elizabeth Kubler-Ross for her contribution to our understanding of sorrow and grieving. Now she writes, It's not the end of the physical body that should worry us. Rather, our concern must be to live while we're alive, to release our inner selves from the spiritual death that comes with living behind a facade designed to conform to external definitions of who and what we are. Who remembers the comedic saying, It's more important to look marvelous than to feel marvelous. Wasn't that meant to be ironic? What a tragic and shallow way to live life, focused on looks and not our experience of life. That is living behind a facade. Personally, I've fallen prey to what Kubler-Ross describes as this spiritual death that comes from living behind a facade. Do we necessarily know we're living behind a facade? We all have blind spots. That's why professional help can be so valuable. They give us feedback, professionally informed feedback, that can help us see where we might be being too hard on ourselves, too easy on ourselves, or blind to what's going on. Like a sports trainer or a French teacher. Sure, we can learn on our own, but even if we have an overdeveloped sense of personal responsibility, we must fulfill that responsibility, and sometimes that includes delegating, delegating to a practitioner that can help us. Who's going to capture our image better in a photograph? Us or a trained professional? We all have loss. We lose jobs, relationships, innocence, dignity, hope. I have, like all of us do. Dr. Jeff Warburton, in a TED Talk from Brighton, England, shares that some survive while others thrive through loss. Is life cheating us when we face a loss? Loss is one of those things we can't change. Maybe life is indifferent to us and doesn't have qualitative or quantitative judgments about living or dying, succeeding or failing. Life isn't cheating us because it's us, not life, that attaches meaning to what we deem good and bad. However, we're cheating life, or more aptly, we're cheating ourselves when we close our hearts due to loss. Dr. Warburton describes what he learned from working with people with AIDS. Repression of our feelings doesn't save us from depression, anxiety, or violence. In fact, it may perpetuate depression and anxiety. Warburton says that some of us embrace our emotions, or as John McAndrew says, lean into them. Some of us make room and time for everything that this constellation of feelings called grief brings our way. 
Some have, and we all have the capacity for, that special courage that only comes with being vulnerable. That's the healthy, life-in-real-time way to process the good and bad. Meeting our hate, anger, pain, terror, or our own craziness from the emotional abyss means letting it swallow us, accepting, letting go. If it feels like part of us is dying, maybe part of us has to die so another part can be reborn, at least psychologically. At times of grief, I've blocked my anger to protect myself or others. Blocking feelings is like building a facade. I learned that a consequence of repressing feelings was that I would lose my own vitality. I blocked my pain and had less compassion. I was afraid of my hate and I had no peace. I didn't really know who I was because I was living a provisional life. I refused to drive into the inevitability of my own private abyss. I needed help to lean in and stop denying it. Denial or avoidance can take many forms. Those who lose a loved one, someone who dies or is missing, they suffer a type of survivor's guilt sometimes. If a sibling dies from an accident or is inflicted with a lifelong disease, the other sibling feels guilty. Why am I allowed to go on living while a member of the family is dead, sick, or missing? How dare I indulge in ever feeling joy or peace? Why should I heal while others are lost or suffering? This type of false assumption prevents the healing we need. Even when we try to get better, these assumptions are part of a dynamic that Robert Keegan and Lisa Lasko-Lahey wrote a book about called Immunity to Change. In their book and in their research, they confront the forces that find everyday people making resolutions to get well or get better. To make changes in life, we have to understand the psychology of the assumptions that are working against us. The heart patient doesn't want to die of heart disease. This is still true while he lights his next cigarette. He has one foot on the gas and one foot on the brake. He wants to stop smoking and needs to keep smoking. His smoking is a coping mechanism. That mechanism needs to be dealt with. It's likely doing an important job. Assumptions he holds triggers the negative behavior that stifle the positive choices he wants to make. In another episode, we'll explore denial in greater detail. We'll look at immunity to change and why we can't learn what we think we already know and how to overcome some of these assumptions that are holding us back. Let's talk now about some of the popular ideas about getting on with life once we've dealt with grief. Is there any such thing as closure? When we discover and experience our pain, are we over it? Nancy Burns gave a TED Talk in Des Moines, Idaho called Beyond Closure. People say that when we're stuck in our grief, we need closure. Pro-capital punishment people say that Killing perpetrators brings closure to the family of the victims and society at large. That's a nice idea. Did the families of those who lost loved ones in 9-11 have closure when they heard that Bin Laden, the mastermind, had been killed by U.S. forces? Certainly not all of them feel that they're over their loss now. 
Burns says we should abandon this false hope of closure and learn to carry our grief forward. She uses the example of a man who lost his first wife decades ago and still misses her deeply. He was still able to remarry into a lasting and happy relationship, yet he still weeps over the loss of the mother of his children. He has carried his grief forward. His new life was healing without closure of his previous life. In fact, Burns feels that the idea of closure and the search for it can distort the grieving process and cause people to get indefinitely stuck. Laura Prince is a San Francisco entrepreneur with a company called Good Morning. We mentioned her at the top of the show. She coaches people through loss and helps them. She has seen her share of family feuds, addiction, and disease spread their harmful impact from the sufferer to all of those around them. When Laura Prince isn't helping others grieve, she's a world traveler, an extreme adventurer. She's learned from accepting life's finitude that every day is a gift and life is to be lived unabashedly. But her greatest joy comes from not heathenistic indulgences, but from the gift she has of helping others through their own loss. More than deep-sea diving or adventure sports, helping others makes Laura Prince feel alive and vital. Trauma work is a term not found in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. As I said at the start, if everything you need for a happy, joyous, and free life is found within those pages, keep doing what's working. Why learn to speak French if you're not going to France? Do what's necessary and what brings value to your life. However, if the 12-step process is lacking for you, well, this is the 21st century. So much more has been revealed, and we can avail ourselves of it. It doesn't devalue the 12-step work. Our journey is as individual as our thumbprint. We each have to find our way. While we share a common bond in the rooms, we are having a very individual experience. Just like mourning the loss of a loved one will be different for the child than for the adult, different for the sibling than the spouse, even two siblings are going to have a different process and different needs through the loss of the same loved one. Truth is indeed a pathless land. It may involve forgiveness, but that's our choice. Forgiveness should never be an obligation. No freedom would be worth having if it didn't come with both personal choice, and personal responsibility. Okay, that's enough for today. Thanks so much for listening. It's great to have you. Special thanks has to go out to John McAndrew for his generous contribution to this week's show. Thanks, John. I invite you uh, to our links at rebelliondogspublishing.com. There, you can find all of the speakers and books we referred to. And let us know what you think if you happen to search out the TED Talks of Laura Prince, Nancy Burns, or Dr. Jeff Warburton. Or if you check out the book Immunity to Change, How to Overcome It and Unlock the Potential in Yourself and Your Organization, I'd look forward to hearing how you enjoyed these. This is Episode 3 of Rebellion Dogs Radio, a production of Rebellion Dogs Publishing. Like last time, we're going to go out with a song, this one by The Chronicles. The song is called A House is on Fire. See if you can find today's theme in the music and words.
man, the neglect of his daily affairs. As his house stood in perdition's flames, goodbye memories and wares. This man was hauntingly calm as he stared at his life's demise. Sharp contrast, premonitions chill my reflection in his eyes. A house is on fire, a house is on fire. A wind ball full of six o'clock news. A house is on fire, a house is on fire. To a chorus of primordial blues. Compassion and concern in most of the passersby. Oh my God, how did it happen? What was lost? Did somebody die? The heretics indulge themselves, a victim and perpetrator the same. The horror did not shock them; they were enchanted by the flames. A house is on fire, a house is on fire. A wind ball full of six o'clock news. A house is on fire, a house is on fire. To a chorus of primordial. I was ashamed to let this happen, though apathy seemed widespread. Someone tapped me on the shoulder, and this is what they said: "Tragic it is, but you seem sincere. Help if you must, but it's not as it appears. This house has been burning for many a year. This house has been burning for." or comments, we're listening. We're all in this together.